Today we are in Zurich with Ahmed Kamasi. Ahmed, hello, how are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> nice meeting you here. And well, let's start with you and with your career in oil and gas industry. So as far as I understand, uh, you are a data scientist and you uh, have the experience around 10 years or so, yes? Mm. Could you please tell me, so how did you uh, start with, with data and with uh, this profession? Uh, it started a long time ago. Um, so I did a, um, a work experience with a research institute, uh, a Siemens research institute in, uh, in Germany. And my challenge was to create a mathematical model for something called piezoelectrics. So these are ceramics. If you compress them, they produce electricity. And if you put electricity through them, they will stretch or compress. Um, and I did it, I did some tests, I did the models, I did some tests, and it worked really well. And then I thought, it made me happy. And I thought, that's my life. I found what I need to do for the rest of my life. Okay, and uh, you started as an engineer, am I right? Mm -hmm. And how you moved from engineer to executive roles? What I say to my teams all the time is that I am a data scientist who happens to be, to have a, a, an executive role or a, a vice president role, um, which comes with benefits, but also comes with a cost. Um, you know, there's less time to do this, the things, the technical things I like the most. Um, and it comes with responsibilities that are way beyond the comfort zone of a typical data scientist. So I have to stretch my own comfort zone. Um, I think it was just a natural progression. It, it really was not planned. It wasn't part of my life plan. And I know that you joined Equinor in 2017. Yes. And uh, have you started the data science team from the very beginning? Uh, I think technically no. There was a team put together a um, few months before I joined. Um, but uh, whenever I, when I joined, we spent time discussing what the data science team is there for, what skills we need and what long-term objectives we want to do and how we can help the company achieve uh, value from data science. Um, and then we developed that into a team structure, into competence program, into recruitment, into geographical decisions and all. So I think maybe three quarters of the team of what we are today happened after I joined and maybe a quarter before I joined. How you defined the people you want to work with? It depends. So mm. I think there, there are different different things. So f first of all, everybody has to be super motivated by um, doing their best. And to be a data scientist, you need to have the ability to um, the, the intellectual, but also the, the mental ability to solve lots and lots of problems as you progress, right? Nothing is ready for us, right? Nothing, like there's no data, there's no users, there's no infrastructure. So you need to do a lot to get your work out there and being used. Um, so solving problem and having the ability to solve lots of problems and persistence and tenacity is very important. Um, the third thing with data science, I think, because as I said earlier, it's a fast moving industry um, you know technology and techniques etc keep moving fast you need to be very modest um, you need to realize that you don't know most of what's possible and what kind of boss you are you know, we had a team off-site recently and we had a, a round table there wasn't a table there was a, a circle of chairs in a church um, 
with the entire team and then we discussed the team dynamic and challenges and so on and one of the team members said you are I think the term used is, is a, a, a hard boss. Um, I don't see myself being uh, a Why? hard boss. Why? think said that. I think, I think because I like moving fast and I like to see progress and I like to see effort. Um, and I, I, I have an aversion to having things half done, right? Um, you know, if you can climb Kilimanjaro, why climb a little hill, right? If it's okay. There, right? So that's that's the kind of attitude I have, and I think I think that creates a probably dynamic of you know, from my position, I don't see everything, I don't see all the challenges that my team has, right? Um, and I shouldn't. I need to give them space, right? And at the same time, they cannot see all the challenges I have, and I don't see my boss's challenges, etc., right? Um, so maybe I demand things that they find a little bit more challenging, but for me ultimately is I want them to thrive by winning, by progressing, by doing the hard thing. It's a bit like sports, right? You don't build muscles, you don't build, you don't run faster just because you're running slower all the time, right? Yeah, you it need helps to them to develop themselves. Exactly. Sure. If it doesn't hurt, there's no gain, right? Um, and I think that's um, that kind of boss. However, you know, I, I would like to think of myself as being, you know, cool, relaxed and it's okay. And you, as a data scientist, arrived to oil and gas industry. But before you worked in Google, SaaS, and the companies, these companies were born digital. Yes. But oil and gas industry is not like that. No. What can you say about this? They are very, very different. Culturally, so first of all, I have to admit that me personally, culturally, I'm very different to a typical oil and gas employee or, or typical oil and gas company, right? Um, they are my previous experiences or employers are born digital. Um, they are also born as product developers. Um, they are also born as constant problem solvers, etc. The oil and gas industry, especially when you are in a company like Equinor, which is an operator, the first thing we care about is safety. Yeah. Making sure that things run properly. Right? Um, even though we don't have the most innovative way to do it, not hurting our colleagues and the environment and our partners is the most important thing, right? So it's a very different starting point, yeah? And we as a digital team or data science team or me personally, we have to accept that and learn how to work within an environment that has a very different starting point. There's no right and wrong. It's not like one is better than the other. It's just two different sets of um, cultures, two different requirements. And what kind of challenges you face in, in oil and gas industry, in such a traditional industry? Objective number one is to operate safely and make sure that we, we do the right thing. Of course, we need to generate um, shareholder value, etc. But task number one is to do things in the right way, which means that you need to have really very explicit processes and ways to do things. Right. So anybody who is in the industry will understand exactly what I'm talking about. Um, if you compare that to a digitally native company, the opposite is encouraged, is absolute chaos is encouraged, right? So because that generates a lot of innovation, etc. Now, if you inject a little piece of code in, I don't know, Google Photos, right, creates a little bug, 
next day it'll be rolled back and people will have updates on their phones and nothing will ever, nobody will, will be hurt, yeah. But if you create, if you make the wrong decision on a platform, then you have a, you have a big impact. Which means that I need to operate at a different speed to what I'm used to. I need to accept um, less change than what I'm uh, used to. Um, and I need to, uh, if you like, moderate how um, radically I think than what I used to. What kind of problems you faced at the beginning of your career? Oh, very good. I think uh, the, fir the first biggest problem is, is uh, deference. I come from a culture which is, you know, you respect your elder, etc., etc. And then if you work in an Anglo-Saxon culture, um, it's a lot more relaxed. Um, that was, I think, my first challenge: is actually really to treat my bosses like my colleagues, rather than rather than you know the infallible elders. Um, um, I think that's the first one. The second one is to be a lot more relaxed about not being able to do something, rather than try to kill yourself to do it. Right? Um, again, I think that that has to do with um, with my background and my education, etc. Um, I come from a uh, a francophone education system which is very intolerant to failure right so it's very tough and uh, elitist um, and I think these two would have made me a lot more relaxed uh, in, in my work and environment early on in my career okay maybe you remember some situation some example to share the, these with us for instance I see, I see the team I have now in Equino right so we, we hire we hire young people we have talented people, we have junior data scientists coming in, etc. And they're very vocal about what they need. Yeah. Um, when I started in Google, you know, I was given a desk, a phone, and okay, here's your login to these things and just go and fix this. Right? I've never heard of anything. I didn't even realize before joining Google that there were ads on a Google page. Yeah, I didn't know anything. Uh, and I had to find that in my way. And that was a really, really hard work to do. Right? Um, and it's a company that demands that, sorry, you are here, you are the best out one of the best, we recruit you for a reason, you just get on with it, right? Maybe I should have been more vocal at that time with my bosses and my colleagues as to, you know, you need to help me here. Right? And I just had to do it on my own. Yeah, that's difficult. And what else can you say about working environment in Google? Um, the people are very energizing. Um, it's a, an environment where there is a huge diversity in background and gender and ethnicity, etc. But almost everybody has the same attitude. Uh, so it's very homogeneous in one way and very diverse in another, right? Uh, and it's really energizing. Uh, the energy, the, um, the, the constant chaos and strife to do better is, um, you know, sometimes I miss it. Okay. And what was the best ever working environment you faced with? SAS. Why? SAS is, is a family, it's not a company, yeah. Everybody is really, everybody really cares about everybody. Everybody wants to win as a team and everybody cares about everybody. We, people help without you really needing to ask, etc. Um, the environment is, the offices are generally really these mansions in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by trees, etc. Um, the food is excellent. Um, everything is designed so that you are part of a family. Yeah, um, and the people were brilliant. 
So SAS is probably the best work environment I had. Summarizing all your back, uh, background, your knowledge and everything, so what is your average working day as vice president for data science in Aquino? Um, I think the, I, I have three things that take most of my time. Um, one is um, stakeholder meetings. So speaking with people in the business about things we need to do and how to organize things, whether it be it in other parts of the digital center of excellence, whether it be it in IT or in the business. Um, the second one is the team. So working with my managers on what we are doing. The third one is the maybe some of the technical elements. So, okay, what's happening with Prevent? What's happening with OPT? How can we solve certain problems? Um, there's also, you know, the admin element and budgeting and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, traveling as well. It takes time. I understood that um, there are different types of data. And there is consumer data and industrial data, which is in oil and gas industry for sure. Could you please comment on these two things? First of all, um, for me, that is not a challenge because data is data and I don't care what it is, right? That's always challenging, right? So from a technical point of view, it's not really a challenge. But yes, you're right. So what you do with, with um, if you are in an industrial organization, the, the type of data you deal with and the type of uh, problem statements on top of that data you deal with are very different to consumer. Right. Um, but also the legal boundaries are very different. Right. So there's a positive and negative. Um, one of the biggest challenge we have is that if you want to recruit data scientists with a really good track records, you will find a lot from the consumer side or the B2C side, um, but you wouldn't find really as many from the B2B side or from the, the, the uh, industrial side. And one of the reasons you need the industrial, uh, the, the data or the types of data we deal with in, in, in industrial application is different is because when we solve problems from a machine learning perspective or data science perspective, we need to solve them at a different definition of scale. And to create an impact is really, really different to the consumer side. Yeah? Um, so there is a technical uh, it creates the technical um, uh, challenge, but it also creates a a, a, um, a route to value challenge as well. How fast we can create value, what what that value is, and how do we achieve it? Mm -hmm. And also, I understood that uh, well, Equinor as an operator produces a huge number of data, mm -hmm. all types of data. So, how you as a data scientist leader manage all these volumes? I think the volume is not necessarily the issue. Um, I think between data science and our platform colleagues, we find ways to actually scale things and manage data in a fast way, especially the time series, i.e. the sensor data. Um, and there are tools and we can experiment and we can solve these problems. I think the real, real issue is if we use sensor data, for instance, to optimize production, how do we do that so that we can apply a solution across everything we want. Or if we use that the sensor data for predictive maintenance and we are able to predict when a whale is going to slug or when a machine is going to have a, an issue, how do you use that across everything instead of doing it step by step, one by one, right? 
So this, the, the, the real issue is not the quantity, but the availability of data makes the ability to create value at scale really there in front of you. It's actually something you can see, but the path to it is unknown, right? And the path to it, we must, we must create that path. Yeah? So as I said, you can create a really good machine learning problem to predict whether a turbine is going to have a bearing failure or not. But can you create a product that generates predictive models on whether any machine is going to fail or not? Right? That's the value. That's the light we see. And that's where we need to get to. And that's the, what the availability of data gives us as a challenge. And well, uh, you need to make um, predictions or some insights out of data. So is it easier in oil and gas industry with industrial data or is it easier with consumer data? Um, that's a good point, actually. I think, I think consumer data um, is more descriptive. Yeah? So if you realize that certain demographic tends to apply for certain banking products, that's easy to explain. Yeah? Say, you know, they have more disposable income, therefore they go for, I don't know, the premium credit card, whatever. Yeah? Uh, I'm just using a very simple example, but if you have um, 200 wells that have a certain issue, right, the production issue that tends to happen and you use the sensor data in a certain way, trying to explain why and when it actually happens all the time, that the insight piece is much, much more difficult, right? You, you, you're dealing with data that's basically just a measure per second. Yeah, it doesn't tell you anything, right? So if I see if I see your credit profile, I will know a lot about you. Yeah, I mean, your age range and income range or whatever. Yeah, where you live, etc. The kind of product you have and you don't have. I can imagine uh, Regina in my head as a prototype. Um, however, if you deal with a machine and lots of sensor data, you need a lot of work with the engineers, etc., to actually explain things, why these are happening. That's why my preference is not to go down that way. It's a really, really highly technical element. You need a lot of engineering and experience to do that. Our job as data scientists is to alert the engineers. This is where you should put your attention and try to answer that question. What's the insight from this anomaly or this prediction, right? For now, we are just focusing on the where the engineers should focus rather than explain to them back necessarily. But uh, I guess you should work closely with the engineers to of achieve course. that. Of course, yes. So is it a normal practice in the company? It is a practice that we, it's not normal. Yeah, to be frank, it's not normal in the sense that you know, in, a, in an organization that is traditional, as we said, and, and like not organization, the industry in general, right? It is very traditional where, and the oil industry is very siloed, yeah? So everybody has part of the value chain that they are expert in and, and they focus on, yeah? So the, the dynamic to get some people with some technology in, completely not discipline related background to work with the discipline. That is a change we as a company needed to make. And we are making, we are still not perfect, but we are trying to make it. So we try to get the data scientists to work with the engineers. The engineers have their jobs. 
the data scientists have their jobs. So finding the job, the, the, the language, finding the right challenge, finding the time, etc. These are still challenges, even if we are making some organizational changes to enable that a lot more, it is still a challenge, but it is a must. Yeah? At least initially, where we create these scalable products and we get our engineering colleagues to trust them and use them and interact with them, I think after, after that, our engineering colleagues themselves will become a little bit of data scientists and they'll continue on their own. They will not need us. Yeah? But we need to get them to that point. Yeah, because I read the news that Equino is already practicing this, that data scientists work closely with engineers and that this thing really brings results. It does, yes, it does. But we, we, we don't do it as in the entire organization and so on, right? And we still have challenges with time, etc. But we are serious about it and everybody is excited about it, right? Um, it's like anything else, right? So if, you, if we work with engineers, we tend to work with the engineers who are most excited about data science, right? So it's like any consumer product, right? The first buyers are the most excited about it, right? If you have an iPhone 11, it's because you're a really big fan of iPhone, right? I don't because I'm, I'm not a fan of iPhone, right? Um, so it's, it's a bit, it's, it's normal. It's a normal behavior. Our challenge is, okay, how do we spread that? How do we, how do we actually make that more and more accessible? How do we make these relationships and interactions a lot more common than what they are today? What are you so, using? So from a technology, pure technology perspective, first of all, we have a cloud-first strategy, right? So everything needs to go to cloud. And then from a data science perspective, we have a cloud-native-first policy, which means that if you use a tool that is not cloud native, and by cloud native I mean it scales elastically and you can automate that, etc. And then the second thing is everything else we use has to be cloud native. Yeah. So on the cloud element, we use a lot of tools and techniques, etc. You know, they're, they're freely available. But on the data, or oh, sorry, on the data, on the data platform, if you like. But on the data science perspective, we are investing a lot in developing tools on top of Kubernetes. So. I personally consider, and we as a team, we consider that Kubernetes will be the common uh, cloud OS, if you like, in, in the future. It allows us to scale a lot. Uh, it allows us also to manage and automate putting things in production. So whenever we have a product, um, so a machine learning pipeline that we need to train automatically and generate an output, an API or dashboard and so on. Um, we can automate these things through various techniques on, on Kubernetes much easier, and we have the scale. And cloud nativity, i.e. I need more resources, I'll just create more resources and scale and scale. Now we are closely coming to clouds, and I know that Equino has its Omnia platform, yes? Mm -hmm. Can you please tell us more about it? So Omnia is the um, data platform on uh, for now, our main partner is Microsoft Azure. Um, and it is the platform where we develop um, solutions for managing our data. So as I said earlier, our probably the data type that we consume the most today is the sensor data. Um, therefore, our Omnia platform you know, allow us to get this data out of the IMS systems, um, uh, manage it so they, we know which sensor belongs to which equipment and it's described in what. 
Um, and we have APIs on top so that we can interact with it uh, relatively straightforwardly. So they, it's, a, it's a true platform in the sense that they solve a problem like Sensor Data. And then we, data science, other people, build products on top by just interacting seamlessly with these um, um, uh, with, with, with the sensor data. We also use it for text data for safety. We use it for subsurface data. We use it for everything else, right? Um, it's an ever-evolving element um, or technology because we are keep solving problems and we add use cases, etc. as we progress. Um, it is also a place where we can collaborate. Um, so we, if you have built a product which solves a certain problem, I can pick it up and continue on a different path, etc. Um, um, and it's a place where we standardize a lot of what we do. Yeah, so in the past, as I said, you know, the industry is very siloed and we replicated data. We didn't really, we didn't really have common patterns of how we use it, etc. Now with Omnia, we have one place where we have common pattern and where we share things. And it's the, the technologies we use and the standards we use are in one place and one. And hopefully that allows us to speed up value creation. Yes, that's what I'd, I understood while reading about Omnia, that it's, so to say, unique because it's too, different, too difficult to put all this data in one place and no one's doing it, but Equinor did, yes? What, one of the reasons for that is because Equinor in the past, even though I would say, you know, you know, it's not a Google, it's not a Facebook in terms of data, but Equinor did not make, um, if you like, um, um, terrible mistakes in the past. So Equinor looked after its sensor data, right? It looked after its subsurface data. I know other organizations, they did it. So if you ask them, you know, where's your sensor data? They say, you know, we just throw everything out after every two years, right? We don't do, we didn't do that historically. So that helped us, right, to get up to speed, yeah? Um, plus Equinor has been early in terms of digitalization and thinking about cloud and platform, et cetera. And they, they, they experimented with a lot of things even before the whole digitalization was, uh, initiative was institutionalized and has an organization, et cetera. Um, so that helped, right? The other thing I think we, we created is because we have a digital center of excellence, so there's a lot of, almost all of the programs we have that consume a lot of data. And by consume, I don't mean data that just exists in Omnia, but also data that we need and then we bring to Omnia and then we consume out of Omnia. Uh, happens in one place, which is the digital center of excellence. That allowed us also to standardize and grow Omnia. Yeah, so as I said, Omnia started with sensor data and then we have a product focused on using text to learn about previous safety incidents. And we just said, okay, we need to bring everything on Omnia. So we need to solve the issue of how do we deal with text? How do we deal with the computation on it? How do we deal with knowledge graph, etc. with the Omnia team? Um, and that helps us to have one place. So we have, suddenly we have this text data, this knowledge graph, sitting next to the sensor data. We don't merge them today, but maybe in years time we will, right? So it's it's kind of, um, it gives us a heads up, Omnia gives us a heads up on, on this merging. And part of that, the reason for that, as I said, is because we didn't do silly things in the past, but also we standardized quite early on how we deal with this, these big data uh, initiatives. Mm -hmm. And so, as you said, it's ever evolving thing. And at what stage is it now? It's half-baked. It's growing, but it's half-baked. It needs a lot more baking. And the reason for that is because 
we are really focusing on two things primarily. One is automation. Let's automate as much as we can out of data science. Uh, and the second one is scale, right? So we need to do things at scale. Um, we are about to create 9,000 um, machine learning models for predictive maintenance on everything it's we have. It's OmniPrevent? OmniPrevent, yes. You're very well informed. <laughs> uh, OmniPrevent, so we, we, we're going, we will do that across everything on the Norwegian continental shelf, right? So to get to that scale, we need to have a lot of work and, and we, we need to prove things and we need to fix things and, and so on and so forth, right? Um, however, I think we are in a, in a place where we can say our choices are the right ones, right? Either on Omnia as a platform or Omnia or, or the data science element, we, the platform we call it Omnia.Aurora, um, um, are the right choices but we need to progress, right? We also, you know, we, we need to use subsurface data at a lot more scale. We're doing that now. Logs, for instance, well logs. We are just bringing them into Omnia and we are, we are uh, automating the process of uh, managing them and interpreting them and so on. Uh, and we are doing that right now. So we learn a lot more and there will be gaps that we need to fix. And uh, can you tell more about Omnia Prevent? Omnia Prevent is really one of the key value um, potentials for us as a company, right? So an oil and gas company, as you, know, you know, we have platforms and assets, etc. So we produce and then if something critical fails, then production stops. Maintenance is everything for oil and gas. Everything, right? So your uptime is the most important thing after safety. Um, so how do we make sure that we increase the, maximize the uptime as much as we can? It's by being a lot more uh, predictive about what's happening. Yeah? And Omnia Prevent targets that value statement, if you like. And it's a really big value statement for us in terms of monetary value, uh, but also in terms of safety and CO2 impact. I'll explain that later. Uh, now, how do traditional organizations do predictive maintenance. What you do generally is you take a machine and you have its sensor data and you know when it failed and you try to use machine learning to predict these failures. Right? That is a very lengthy process. It takes a lot of time. Um, it takes, as you said, a lot of engineering time to understand what happened, which data and how do I interpret, is it right, is it wrong, etc. So it's not really easy to create impact at the scale we have. Yeah, we have lots of platforms, we have lots of ways, we have lots of machines, right? So how do we do that? Omnia.prevent flips the problem statement on its head and says, okay, I have stuff that has sensors, right? So it's whales, it's turbines, compressors, condensers, anything, yeah? I need to be able to understand when any one of these is working normally and it's not working on normally. So I need my AI, if you like, to distinguish between I'm expecting this to see these sensor values, and I'm not expecting these sensor values, therefore, engineer, can you please have a look? Yeah? And if I do that in an automated way, then suddenly I can go boom, and I have machine learning everywhere, and it's the engineers who have to interact with that, um, and hopefully we create the impact together. Yeah? So that's Omnia.prevent. To do that, we needed to solve many problems. So first of all, there's a technological problem. You need to run machine learning at a vast scale on a lot of data, um, and the data will keep growing and the scale will keep growing, right? So that's why we chose 
Kubernetes, which shows certain ways to, uh, to do things and automate. Yeah? The second thing is we need a general machine learning way to do this. Right? We don't want to build it one by one. What we want to do is build a general machine learning, um, if you like, uh, uh, pipeline, apply it, and then learn case by case. So learn what happens with offshore oil wells. Learn what happens, how do we optimize Omnia.prevent for turbines, for compressors, etc. Right? And that's the stage where we're at, which that's a difficult machine learning problem. Right? And you know, how do we deal with sensors? And, and we know that if we are dealing with sensors on a complex system like a compressor or a turbine, these sensors are correlated together, but also they're correlated in time, and I need to do certain things. So we chose a certain path uh, in there. The third challenge we have is, okay, how do we create the scale? So the scale is technological, i.e. I can build 9,000, 10,000 models with a boom. You know, I press off a button, and we can solve that, right? But the real issue is, okay, who's going to optimize these models? Who's going to understand them, etc.? So we need our engineers to interact with the system. We need to create the scale through our engineering colleagues. That's why I told you earlier, hopefully in a year's time, our engineering colleagues will become a little bit of data scientists because they will be interacting with these things. They will be understanding the machine, these machine learning problems. And if they are turbine experts, they will know, hopefully, how to optimize Omnia.prevent for their um, area of expertise. And that's how we can create a lot more scale. Another thing I want to discuss is a Congress participation mm -hmm. between it's our job, it's our job, and we need to also have a feedback from people of your level. Could you please tell me when you come to the Congress, what kind of goal do you set in front of yourself? Mm. Um, coming to a Congress, or it's like interviewing people. Yeah. Um, what makes me tick is that I learned something that I've never thought of before. So I have that problem statement, or I can understand the problem statement, and I wouldn't have thought of it. So when I come to places, um, events like these, again, when I interview people, it's the same thing. The successful interviewer, interviewee, is the person who tells me, I did X, and I think, I would have never thought about that, and it's a really good idea. Um, so the same thing here. I want to learn, um, and generally, something that is practical, that is demonstrable, and I would go out and say, that was really clever. I would have never thought about that. That's by really what means. I want. Yeah. Yes. By which means? You, you mean listen to the speeches or talking to people? Listen to speeches, talking to speeches, seeing exhibitions, etc. Yeah. Okay. Um, and for example, uh, you definitely understand that since you are representing Equinor, a leading company, uh, there are lots of suppliers who come in and want to talk to you and want to maybe show something to you, some solutions. Have you ever, um, I don't know, gained some useful contact and take some solution out of event participation to your company? We have one that I met in, a, in an event, yes. Okay. And they impressed me. Yeah. What they did to make you impressed? Uh, the pitch was very clear. The value proposition was very clear. Yeah, so there wasn't, uh, I wasn't lost in what do you do, yeah, kind of thing. And I think, despite what, 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 you know, people in, in certain situations and companies like Equino and larger companies, we are bombarded with messages, right? So the message needs to be sharp and it needs to be targeted to value proposition that is palatable to us, right? So it's. Um, um, I think that's that's the difference. It was very sharp, directed, and I 
didn't spend too much time thinking about how can I get value out of you. That's interesting. And also, you are often doing a speech. You are a speaker yourself. What um, can you say about making a speech at the Congress? So what value did it, uh, it brings to you? Um, it's, it's, it's the feedback. Yeah. I'd like to know what people think in a sense. Am I missing something? Are we as a team missing something? Are a company missing something? Um, are people doing... So when, when, when I give a presentation or speech, I describe the problem statement. This is what we are trying to achieve. Yeah? And this is how we are going, on, going about achieving it. Um, and it's important to get feedback. About the strategy uh, your company is applying, so it is always safe, yes, low carbon and high value strategy in your company. And for sure, you are as a data management team, you should support that strategy. Yes. Am I right? And for example, a safety part, which is as we already talked, uh, the most important in the company. What are you doing in terms of safety? Okay, so let me. I promised you to talk about Omnia dot prevent in terms of safety and CO two. So I'll, I'll do it briefly now, and then I talk about. Uh, what we do in core safety. So first of all, if you are predicting failures on your machines and wheels, etc., it means fewer interventions that are um, urgent or emergencies, which means that you need to fly fewer helicopters with spare parts, etc. So your colleagues are working in a safe environment and then you, you are using less CO2, if you like, to make the same production. So there is an impact and there will be an impact. In terms of core safety product, one of the main programs in digitalization is what we call digital safety, and it has many angles uh, to it. But from a data perspective, what we realized as a company is that every time we have an incident and we investigate the incident, the learning really was it happened before or something similar happened before. Yeah? Maybe not necessarily on the same asset, maybe on another one, but it happened before. So why don't you learn? right? So we looked into how our colleagues interact with the learning. So we are a very disciplined company. So every time we have an incident from a very small thing to a very big thing, we log it and we have uh, reports and, and our colleagues say what happened and why it happened and so on, right? That is invaluable data. But when our colleagues plan their operations, it's very hard for them to find the insight, right? It's a bit you're too young maybe, but I remember you know, search engines before Google, right? It was re really, really hard to find, or even the early Google, right? It was really, really hard to find what you wanted, yeah? Um, so what we said is, okay, we need to solve this problem. So we need to automate this uh, insight generation from I'm doing this job now. I know what happened, or at least we know as a company in the system what happened before. Can I match this job to previous incidents and present them to our colleagues. We developed natural language processing tools um, that say, okay, I understand the objective of this job. We call it a work order, right? It's to weld and blah, blah, blah. We recognize where it's going to happen. It's going to happen in this part of the platform and so on. And we recognize that it involves scaffolding. Yeah? That gets matched against what's called the knowledge graph so knowledge graph is basically a, 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 the knowledge that we capture from previous incidents. And we put it in a, uh, if you think about it as a, a graph means a network. Yeah, things are related to each other. Yeah, so this incident happened on this platform, doing this job, etc. And then I can find links. So 
okay, if I'm doing this job, can you find all the incidents around near it or similar to it? So we match these two, and then we present them to our colleagues. And we say, you're doing this job, we find all these matches, they have this relevance, this is why we match them, because the objective of the work or the area you're doing or the type of um, uh, tools you're using, uh, can you please consider them? Yeah. This comes part of a, a tool that we call the operation planning tool. So there's a lot more to it um, to help our colleagues optimize their planning. But the learning part is essential. Currently, we have about 110 users a week. Every week, they come back and do the, uh, the, uh, the planning on this tool. Um, and about the same number of uh, interactions with this learning. Uh, while speaking about your strategy, there's another point which is low carbon. So mm. we are now living in a world who everyone's tried to achieve low carbon uh, production, clean fuels, so yes. everything about this. What's your team doing for this thing? Very good. So we actually have um, um, started an initiative where we are measuring impact of everything we do on carbon from a data science perspective. So, as I said, the operation planning tool is about better operations, maximizing what you can do with what you have rather than moving people around and so on, right? Omnia.prevent is about better maintenance. So we have fewer helicopters, etc. We are working on with drilling on predicting casing being stuck, for instance, right? So if, if you, you know, drilling a whale generates a lot of carbon. So if you save a day and the time it takes to, uh, to drill a whale, that has an impact, right? So we are actually measuring or building a framework to measure the impact of everything we do on carbon, right? However, everything we do is not going to remove the carbon. So we as a company, we are transitioning or we want to transition um, into a low carbon future, including renewable energies, right? And we are working very closely now with our renewable colleagues on putting a data science strategy for renewables so, what, so that the ultimate aim is how can we be as competitive as possible in renewable um, and how we as data science team can help that. Right? How can we make it competitive? How can we make it more profitable than today, safer, etc., etc. Right? That is something that the team is really engaged in. So I have two of my managers are completely engaged in that. Um, and we will probably set up a team just focusing on renewables um, uh, because it is our future uh, as a planet, but also as a, as a company. Okay, and also I read a new, I have read a news about that you have released some um, data from carbon capture and storage plant. I forgot the name of the field, but you have released this data and you're showing it uh, to the other world, of, as I understood, to help them learn. Can you yes. give more details? Yeah, so we, um, we, have, we, we have a burgeoning business of capital. Uh, carbon capture and, and, and storage and part of that is you know you need to capture the carbon you need to transport it and you need to inject it and if you inject it then you need to make sure there are no seismic or micro seismic events etc so these are um, really big technical challenges so to get this business to be economically viable but also um, you need to make sure that it's really environmentally uh, 
environmentally positive, then there, there are lots of challenges that you need to solve, right? And we learned a lot as an organization. So we, we work on micro seismic detection from a data science perspective, right? From a machine learning perspective. Um, uh, and sharing this data will help us say, okay, this is what we have achieved. This is what we know when there are challenges, go ahead and see if you can solve them. Go ahead and see if you can learn something. Um, um, we, we, we share a lot of data. So we have shared already data from previous, um, from previous uh, fields, etc. And um, if we can make progress by sharing data, on, especially on, on lowering the CO2, I think, and the industry gets into that, dyna that dynamic, right? I think we as Equinor, we are very open. But that's not necessarily reciprocated everywhere, right? We need everybody to be open, especially on these new challenges, so that we move faster. But if you set a good example to other companies? I hope so. Speaking about increasing profitability for the company, can you give me an example of a tool you developed or developing for now for this particular purpose? So we are developing tools to help our colleagues just study investment opportunities in the highest um, potential areas, right? And this combination of various machine learning uh, um, solutions to do that, yeah. Um, another area is about production forecasting, yeah. So if you are, especially in our land business, where we enter commercial contract, we need to be as precise as possible about where and how much and so on we will produce. Um, so that we can optimize these decisions across, right? So that's a, this has a really massive impact across our uh, onshore business. Um, I talked about the uh, the operations element. Uh, so optimizing operations um, is very important, not only from a safety and CO two perspective, but also from profitability. Yeah. Um, again, it's uptime, it's lower maintenance costs, it's targeted maintenance, etc., uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and drilling, right? So we are leaders in automated drilling, right? We are now applying machine learning and reducing the number of um, um, drilling incidents, like casing being stuck, etc., right? And it's really expensive to drill an offshore whale. So if we can save one, two, three days, that is a really increase um, in profitability, but also it's a reduction in capex. It's with the real money we stick in the ground, yeah? And we cannot take out with us. Maybe you have a goal set by your management, for example, to save these amount of money by your tools. Do you have something like that? We have, so we have, we have engaged in various uh, targets. So everything has, remember the top of my permit? Yeah. Um, each one of them has a target, yeah? Um, in the Omnia, the maintenance, I know you're, you're coming back to maintenance, right? Um, um, our target is $160 million free cash flow um, uh, from, I think, 2023. Okay, that's what I can ask next year. That's what you can ask next year. Next year. So where, where, are, where are we with that? So you can see, you know, it's, it's a really substantial number and it will have an impact. I forgot also to talk about renewables. So we are working on maintenance and renewables, but we are working on optimizing autonomously a fleet of offshore wind turbines. So our real expertise in offshore wind, um, and we are working on that already. Um, and there again, if we manage to, in, to, to get the balance between maintenance cost and increased production, we will have also a monetary impact. You know, we are talking also always about data and about safety, but 
data also need safety and here is cybersecurity and what mm -hmm. we have. Can you please tell me what kind of uh, policy you have in terms of cybersecurity? We are developing, um, we are probably 80% there, an extremely high level um, of ring fencing or countermeasures, even to the point where we, we manage on the Kubernetes, Kubernetes is this uh, distributed computing framework where every you have what's called microservices or containers, these containers or images that create containers that run a little piece of code, self-contained, and then they disappear, right? That's how we create scale, right? So whenever we inject, we put one of these in production, then we ring fence it by another one. So it's, it's a little piece of code. It's... It's like a, having a virus around it. It's like having a cell with a virus around it that watches and says, no, you cannot do this or can do that. We also control which container speaks to which container and so on. So that's, that's really low-level technical element to try to ring fence as much as we can our data and the decisions we make and the computation we make. The second element is a human. Yeah? So, you know, if you have a cybersecurity uh, incident 99.9% it's either social engineering or just people doing silly things yeah um, so my team last year got trained on hacking so we get professional hackers to train us on hacking so we get to know all the mistakes that people can do um, um, and then you Bear them in mind, right? So when you package your code, you think about, oh, okay, did I leave something that is stupid? Did I, um, do I expose what type of database I use, for instance? Right? Um, and then the third element um, is, if you like, um, cultural. Do we have the culture of being responsible for our data? Yeah. So before you do anything, you have to think, is this, is this really in the interest of the company or it's not in the interest of the company. And when we talk about data security rather than cyber security, it's beyond attacks. It's losing data. It's losing your laptop on a plane yeah, or whatever. So having that awareness and culture is another element as well. And um, also, I cannot ask about your digital flagship project, which is Johannes Werdrap Field, yes? Mm -hmm. So it's one of your, the hugest projects of your company. Can you please explain us more things? You know, Johannes Werdrap is, is, is an exemplar of a future field. Um, one of the most important decisions that were made and the design of Hans Verdorp is that we will measure everything, right? So we have fiber optics running in the whales and we measure subsurface uh, 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 data um, in real time. Um, so that's the most important thing, right? So we will measure everything. Um, and we put the investment in that, right? So if you drill a whale and you put a whale with fiber optics, it's more expensive than without fiber. Uh, the second element I think that is very important is that Johannes Verdrup is the, one of the early and biggest, if you like, customers to our integrated operation center. So we, are, we, are, we have created an operation center um, in... Uh, onshore. Onshore, um, to monitor and, and, and help the operations offshore. Um, and Johannes Verdrup is really the flagship customer there, which means that things around operating model and how we change processes and the skills, etc. 
you Hans Verdop will help us learn that a lot more, right? Because it's so far ahead in terms of technology. It is new, therefore we can actually make changes and we can learn how to make the most out of the digital technologies that we are putting in this integrated operating center. Another traditional part, which is beliefs, it's a quick questions and quick answers. Just say what comes to your head. So the first question is uh, digital word of the year for you. Autonomy. What is the activity or initiative you're proud of mostly? Me and some friends, we're doing some work on, um, on a medical condition uh, that happens to women when they are pregnant. Uh, and we're trying to see if we can predict it from um, simple data about hormones and social demographics, etc. Um, so if we succeed, we will be very proud. And complete the sentence. Data is the new... Knowledge. What is your... Every time order in your favorite restaurant? A chicken or lamb naga in my local Indian restaurant. Wow, okay. It's quite spicy. Really good. <laughs> um, whom would you like to interview? Baruch Despinoza or Benedict Despinoza. Why? He's probably the, the, the person who made most impact on my life intellectually and he's probably one of the smartest people I've ever lived. Would you trust artificial intelligence to be your personal assistant? Yeah, but because I have tolerance for its mistakes, because I know there will be mistakes and errors, and I know why. So, yes, but I have tolerance for mistakes. Okay. What is the most ridiculous startup concept you have met? I, I saw so many startups trying to create virtual things. Everything becomes virtual, you know, like virtual bakery, you know. Humans still need to eat bread, you know. <laughs> I'm not saying that happened, I'm just taking it to a, a ridiculous extreme, but I've seen so many of these and I had to say no thank you to, to many ideas. Okay, um, do you have any um, anything you want to learn and will learn for sure? Uh, piano, music, um, too much, like half of word languages if I can. All right, and the last question is, can you name me three mobile apps you can't live without them? I use a Pocket for podcasts. Um, Pocket Cast, I think it's called. Um, so I, I go to the gym where I run, and I don't listen to music, I listen to podcasts. So that's, I cannot live without that. Uh, Wikipedia. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, it's, it's gonna be either Amazon or Reddit. I have few lists on linguistics, especially on Reddit, that are excellent. Um, but on Amazon, I can find the book, so I'll stick with Amazon.